Magnus Podcast, episode 28. This is Dante at 700 with Anthony Esselin. Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. We're glad you could be here for the beginning of the exciting second season of the Magnus Podcast. Many great things to catch you up on, but uh, it has been a long time. We're going to be pumping out new episodes at least every week for the foreseeable future. It's actually been longer than you might think, 700 years in the making for this episode because we are celebrating this year the anniversary of the death of the world's greatest poet, arguably, and that is Dante. And there's nobody better with whom we could be celebrating than famed translator, author, professor, and, of course, senior fellow in the Albertus Magnus Institute's fellowship. That is Dr. Anthony Esselin. In today's episode, we're going to let you listen in on part one of Dr. Esselin's class on Dante, Into the World Beyond with Dante. And as I was listening to this live, uh, it was just a remarkable synthesis and historical contextualization of of Dante, the man, and the work. You're going to love it. For more on the Magnus Fellowship, visit magnusinstitute.org. We are going to be scheduling new classes very soon. So become a fellow today. It's completely free, and it will change your life. You might hear that a lot, but this will actually change your life. You're in a live class with the likes of Anthony Esselin, for instance. So it's worth doing, uh, and it is free. So magnusinstitute.org for that. And without further ado, here's Dr. Esselin on Dante. Enjoy. Okay, so uh, guys, I thought I would begin um, just this first day uh, by giving a a sum of the cultural and intellectual context for for the Divine Comedy. This is not something I'm going to repeat every time. I'm just just going to try to set up um, up the the world of the poem. Um, Now, I, I don't know... I don't know what each of you has learned about the Middle Ages, but um, I hope you understand that even the name, the Middle Ages, was intended as an insult. Okay, um, This is not a, uh, an unusual thing in the course of history. Um, the name sticks, even though it, it, at the beginning it was intended to denigrate somebody. Uh, so, for instance, the great Gothic cathedrals that uh, dotted the landscape in France especially, uh, and in Germany and England, those, to my mind, the most beautiful buildings ever to grace the face of Earth. Um, they were called Gothic by, um, by by Renaissance architects as an insult. That is, Gothic means fit for Goths. That is, fit for barbarians. Okay. Um, and the same thing goes for Baroque art, which is so wonderful. Baroque means having to do with caves, you know, uh, and was an insult uh, leveled at. Um, uh, 17th century, late 16th century, and then 17th century art and architecture, music and poetry by people in the um, <laughs> Enlightenment who uh, who didn't care for it and didn't understand most of it. Anyway, um, I think the Middle Ages, I think the Middle Ages are, it, it was called middle, but right, because it was that, just that stuff in the middle. You had the real world of the classics, and then you had us, and then you had all this bunch of stuff in the middle that we don't really care about anymore. Um, the Middle Ages, to my mind, the High Middle Ages, are, are one of those periods in uh, in human history in which 
we really have an amazing uh, flourishing of human arts, uh, of, um, of the intellect, and the invention of social institutions, okay? It, uh, it's, it, there are only a few periods in human history that rival this. One, one uh, would be ancient Greece in the 5th uh, and 4th centuries BC. Um, another one would be the Renaissance itself, the Middle Ages. It's it an amazing time, okay? Don't think that everything was gloom and doom in the, in, in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages are bright and cheerful until the Black Death hits in 1348. And that's very late, okay? That's almost at the end of what we call the Middle Ages. Um, a preoccupation with decay and death, that's, that is much more characteristic of the Renaissance, actually, than it, it was of the Middle Ages. Um, Anyhow, uh, you may you may be uh, you may be encouraged or you know led to think by um, by writers from uh, you know our own founding in America uh, that uh, 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 monarchies in the Middle Ages were and the feudal system in the Middle Ages were especially oppressive. Um, quite the reverse is true. Kings in the Middle Ages possess very little authority beyond. Um, that of their own uh, rather small armies, their own personal holdings in land. Um, one of the great struggles in, in the, the various nations of Europe was to centralize everything. And that's not, that hasn't happened yet in the Middle Ages. Dante himself wants to see it happen, but it hasn't happened. Instead, what you have across Europe is an amazing patchwork of, um, of, small and it, especially in Italy and the, what we call now the Netherlands, largely self-governing areas, okay, um, with their own cultures and with their own, um, their own traditions, their own kind of self-rule, um, not really united um, under any great big state. The modern state doesn't exist yet. Um, and this sort of thing actually, I think, uh, provides the impetus, or at least it lays the groundwork for a lot of cultural development. Uh, things are not centralized. Um, you have uh, an amazing variety of zones of authority and so forth. Dante himself grows up in one, right? Florence at this time is pretty much an independent city republic, okay? If there's anything that is somewhat resemblant, that somewhat resembles uh, what Athens would have been um, in ancient Greece, it's a place like Florence or a place like Venice, a place like Genoa, right? Um, for, for several hundred years, this is the case. Um, and even within the city, it's not as if none of the mayor of the city or the council of the city gets to determine everything that goes on in the city. You have also uh, guilds, professional guilds. These are all over Europe, and they have their own recognized liberties, right? Um, they, uh, they control uh, artistic life uh, uh, across Europe. They set standards for, um, for, for artistry. Uh, they, they, they take on apprentices. They teach them. Um, they are their own uh, insurance companies for widows and orphans. Um, that too is it's it's we have our lots of essentially lots of states within states and the states themselves are, are small and they're everywhere. 
And one of the most important guilds is the guild of the university, right? The university system is basically invented in this time. And it's an outgrowth of, um, of the understanding of a guild, right? If, if I become a master in uh, a guild of, let's say, uh, goldsmiths, right? Um, I, I have that and I can go any place in Europe and be recognized as a master goldsmith, right? Well, what if we have that same kind of understanding with regard to the intellectual life and intellectual achievements, okay? I mean, this was not true any place else in the world, right? That you could, um, you could study, you, you, could be a, a, you could be from Sweden, studying in Paris, taking your classes in Latin, um, getting your certification there, by the university guild, right, um, that w maintained control of quality there, and then move to Cologne and become a doctor there, a teacher there, right? Um, we take this sort of thing for granted now. This is basically invented in the Middle Ages, all right? Um, the, the guild of professors and students uh, governing themselves to make sure that um, that high quality work was done by the students and the professors actually showed up to teach the courses that you're paying them to teach. This is an invention of, of the Middle Ages. Okay? Um, it's, it's a, it's, we see this amazing flowering of intellectual life. Part of it is um, due to, it's a funny kind of thing, but um, something happened, not sure exactly what it was, around the year 1000 that provided Europe with really warm weather for around 300 years, okay? Uh, it's called a medieval warm period. And Europe is warmer during this period than it is right now. Um, so that the, they're, actually, um, they're actually growing grain on the coasts of Greenland, um, the uh, Scandinavians are. And for the first time in history, grapes are grown in, in Great Britain, in, on the English island. Um, population doubles. They, uh, some improvements in agriculture make this possible too. Field rotation is one of them. Um, uh, improvement in technology for horses so that you could use horses, which are stronger, okay, more expensive, but stronger to plow fields. Um, population of Europe doubles over those 300 years. These are good times, all right, before the Black Death hits. And cooling starts to uh, show up around the year 1300, right? So that by when, when it hits in 1348, you already got um, a population that's compromised by some decades of poor harvests. But for 300 years, times are really good. And people are moving around, right? This is a time of um, the invention of international uh, trade with banking, uh, right? It is an invention of the Middle Ages that... You can um, you can buy and sell at long distance, right? Um, and give a note of credit uh, to somebody who is going to uh, sell your wares maybe 500 miles away. Um, the, you know, wool is being taken from England to the Low Countries, being developed and finished there, sent to Florence, where it would be uh, dyed and worked into cloth and then sold out east. And in order to have all this going on, we, you have systems of credit, systems of banking. Um, that kind of interchange is also happening in the intellectual life, right? Um, 
all, all these uh, scholars in Western Europe, they are, uh, they are you know, fluent in Latin. Um, they, um, they are able, since everyone is pretty much at union in the faith, um, they, they, although they have fights all the time, they, they can talk to each other, okay? Um, you can, so that this sort of thing is, is possible to happen. Happens all the time, right? Thomas Aquinas, for instance, um, he grows up in southern Italy. Actually, he's uh, my, my my wife is uh, uh, I think a, a second cousin, twenty nine times removed of Thomas Aquinas. Um, he's he's in the royal line, you know. Uh, and um, uh, Thomas wanted to join the Dominican friars. The Dominicans and the Franciscans are also new. It being invented in the 13th century, he goes to study at Cologne. All right, this is in Germany. It's way up the Rhine River, where he studies under Albert Saint Albert the Great. Right, oh, we have the, our institute named for him. Um, then he goes on to continue his studies and to continue teaching in Paris. All right, so he's from southern Italy. He goes up to Germany, and then he goes across to France. And this is not unusual. This is in fact typical for the time. So we're getting all kinds of cross-fertilization and ferment intellectually um, and artistically, too. It's also happening artistically. So um, somehow, some way, I, we're not sure why it happens, but it does happen. In the 11th century, these poets start to spring up in southern France, the region called Provence. Um, they're writing in the regional... Uh, French of uh, Provence, Provençal, and they begin, we know them as the troubadours, um, they begin uh, this tradition of uh, rather complicated love poetry, and um, it seems to spring out of nowhere, and then it sweeps across Europe, right? Um, it, it goes to every country, it even goes to Germany. Um, a lot of things don't make it as far as Germany. It goes to England. Lots of things don't make it that far. Goes everywhere, and um, and it was it was inevitable somehow, right? Eventually, some really great minds were going to take this vibrant tradition of love poetry that began with these Provençal courtiers, the troubadours, um, and combine that with the learning of the schools, with the ferment of philosophy philosophical thought and theological thought that was going on in the universities all over all over Europe and other kinds of thought too. I mean, new developments in astronomy and mathematics and so on. Uh, somebody was going to take this high voltage wire and connect it with that high voltage wire, all right? And we would get a new thing in the history of mankind, okay? And we would get love poetry that was steeped in the entire intellectual tradition of a people extending essentially in the case of Christians all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish scriptures, right? I would love to say that Dante was the person who put those wires together. Um, he's actually preceded a little bit in this by his friend in Florence, his older friend in Florence, Guido Cavalcanti who we'll have cause maybe to mention uh, later on later on today. So uh, it, Guido Cavalcanti um, 
connects the wires, but it's Dante uh, in whom this connection really comes to uh, uh, full fruition, right? So Dante, uh, Dante is born in Florence in 1265. Uh, he's, um, he's a loyal, patriotic Florentine. In those days, right, to be patriotic meant you loved your city. Uh, there's no such thing as Italy, except as a loose geographical area where people speak uh, somewhat of the same language that they can kind of understand each other. Um, Italy won't be a state until the middle of the 1800s. Okay? Uh, now, everybody in the peninsula, they have memories of when there was the Roman Empire. Okay? Uh, that's big important thing for Dante. But even to this day in Italy, if you if you go up to somebody and say, um, what are you? Uh, they will not, in the first instance, say, io sono, sono italiano. They would say, io sono fiorentino. I am a Florentine. Okay. Um, and it even to this day, it means that they hate the people of Siena. Why do you hate the people of Siena? Because I'm a Florentine, we have to hate the people of Siena, and they hate us, and we both hate the people from Pisa. Okay, um, there's something I think really healthy about that. Uh, anyway, that's that's kind of the way it is. He's a patriotic Florentine. Um, that means he takes part in its in its political life, uh, and the political life goes goes bad. Okay, um, this is politics is a blood sport. Uh, I don't want to put a pretty face on it. There, there are parties in in Florence. Um, one party is more or less devoted to the fortunes of the nominal emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, he's not really holy. He's not Roman. And as for an empire, it you know it's kind of loose. So it's a funny kind of thing. A Holy Roman Emperor. It's not holy. It's not an emperor, empire. It's not. It's not Roman. Um, in Dante's time, he's living in southern Italy. Uh, his capital is in Cosenza. Um, and, uh, you know, there's one party that uh, is kind of favoring the emperor. The other party's kind of favoring the pope. Um, really what it is, it's being Italy, it, it's, it's a war of factions among powerful families. Okay, uh, It's my family versus your family. It's our families that we're all together. We're kind of related against your family that you're all together. You're kind of um, the, the the parties go uh, by the name. Um, they're actually adopted into Italian from German. Uh, the Guelphs, who are more or less for you know for the Pope, uh, yeah, more or less. Uh, basically, they're for themselves. And the Ghibellines, who are more or less for the Emperor, but you know, basically, they're for themselves. And they they lock horns together and they come to bloody battles. Okay, um, one of those battles, Battle of Monteperti, uh, in which the Ghibellines massacred the Guelphs of Florence, and uh, Dante took. Um, uh, but Dante has memory of that battle. That's in Canto Ten of our readings today. That a reflection on that battle. Uh, Dante took part in uh, some of this warfare when he was a very young man. Um, the Ghibellines were driven out of Florence for a while, and then the Guelphs were remained split into one party and another party, the black and the white Guelphs, you know. Um, Dante's party, in turn, was exiled from Florence. Uh, and uh, Dante always believed that the Pope, the 
rather a aged and uh, uh, sly, very capable, very intelligent political actor, uh, the, the Pope Boniface VIII, who's on the throne in the year uh, 1300, um, when this uh, expedition to the lower world is supposed to be taking place, uh, that Boniface VIII engineered his, his Dante's exile from Florence. Uh, Dante is um, exiled on trumped up charges of political corruption uh, in 1302, okay? All of his uh, property is confiscated, right? Property uh, that belonged to his wife is not confiscated. All his personal property is confiscated. Dante will never return to Florence, okay? Uh, near the end of his life, they're asking him to come back. He says, I'll only come back if you give me all of my property back. Well, they don't. They can't do it. It's been gobbled up on. He never returns. Okay. He dies in exile in 1321. When the Divine Comedy is written, he's writing it from exile. So that the poem is told from the point of view of someone who has lost his homeland. Um, his wife and his children remain in Florence. He will never return. Uh, he's buried. I don't know if you know this, but he's buried in Ravenna. Uh, see, uh, you know, as time went on, people really knew this guy is the greatest writer of our time. You know, kind of a good thing to have him with us. It's a, it's a feather in our cap. Um, so, you know, the people of Ravenna were, were protecting him. He died in Ravenna, and he's entombed there. And the sculpture on his tomb, the bronze sculpture on his tomb, is of him looking in the general direction of Florence with scorn with contempt, okay? And the Florentines have been begging the Ravenates to let them bring back Dante's body. And they said, no, 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 you Florentines, we're keeping him right here, okay? Sometime in his young life, uh, uh, Dante says, and we, we have no reason to doubt his word on this, okay? Uh, uh, sometime he saw a young woman named Beatrice, and he fell in love, uh, a love that was not a sensual love. So he never seems to have desired to marry her or even to have sexual congress with her, um, but, but fell for her totally. Okay? He describes this falling in uh, a love in a, a, a great work that precedes the Divine Comedy. And it would be enough to establish his reputation as a writer of world class, La Vita Nuova, The New Life. Okay? Um, it's in La Vita Nuova that he's struggling to come up with a new kind of love poetry. Because his love for Beatrice is, is, is being transformed in that work into uh, an ideal love. Um, an ideal love of truth and beauty especially that truth and beauty that Beatrice points towards, that is the truth and the beauty of Christ, okay? Um, the young poet in La Vita Nuova who speaks to us doesn't, doesn't usually understand that. And that what's being portrayed is the struggle of that young person to understand that. Uh, Dante got a little bit older, He's, he, for a while, he seems to have set that aim that is associated with his, with his love for Beatrice, 
set it to the side. And perhaps that is part of his self-condemnation at the beginning of this poem. I had wandered from the true path. Okay. Um, this is the, at the beginning of the Inferno. We really are back to Beatrice. Beatrice, um, who knows whether uh, she was entirely aware of this uh, devotion of Dante's. Um, I, I don't think that we can be uh, uh, we can be flippant about it and say, you know, he didn't really love her. It was all in his head or something like that. Um, with a person like Dante, uh, a, a spiritual experience such as he describes in La Vita Nuova um, may be entirely genuine and very hard for almost anybody else to understand because we are dealing with Dante, that soul, and not just any um, any any person's soul. She married a banker and she died relatively young. Uh, she died in her early 20s. Don't marry a banker. Um, anyway, uh, so by the time he is writing this, Beatrice, Beatrice has passed away. Beatrice has passed away many years before. Okay? Um, he writes it as if the journey is taking place in the year 1300. So it would be a year and some months away from his exile in 1302 and Boniface VIII is on the throne and he can say in the middle of the journey of our life and mean it in an absolute sense because you see we are supposed to live uh, three score and ten years, 70 years so exactly half of that would be 35 when the journey is supposed to take place. But he's also thinking, he's also thinking of this passage in, uh, and we're going to get to the poem now, right now, but he's also thinking of this passage in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And um, this is a prayer, uh, the canticle of King Hezekiah. If you are praying the office of the dead, you will pray this prayer, okay? Among, it's, it's among the, the Psalms. That, that you would be praying is this canticle. And um, the beginning of the canticle in, in Latin, in dimidio, in dimidio dierum um, nostrarum, vadam ad portas inferi, in the middle of the days, in the middle of our days, I went down to the gates of hell. Um, that's right there. An allusion to that is right there at the beginning of the poem. So let's now, oh, one more thing, okay? Um, one more thing, and I, 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 see, I don't want to take up too much time here with this. Um, it is generally believed, okay? That's a really good system, I think. It's generally believed that human beings are characterized by uh, two principal faculties, which... Uh, we can denote by um, reason, all right, or more properly speaking and more broadly speaking, intellect. Because reason might have to do with deduction from premises. Intellect has to do with intellectual understanding, which might, in fact, not require uh, deduction from premises, but be uh, uh, also an instant vision of something an instant total comprehension or total grasp of a thing, the act of the intellect, the act of seeing, okay? 
we're characterized by intellect and by will. Um, the intellect uh, is supposed to inform the will as to what to desire. The intellect sees what is true and good and beautiful and relays the information to will so that it may then pursue it with the, in the right way, um, with the proper degree of energy, and in the case of the highest good, with, with your, a total will, with a total self-giving. Okay? And now these uh, two faculties are uh, roughly embodied by the two great ranks of angels, the, uh, the highest angels, the cherubim and the seraphim. Um, the cherubim associated with intellect, with vision, with seeing, um, the seraphim burning with the fire of love. Okay? Also, roughly speaking, these two faculties are associated with the two great new orders of, of preaching friars um, that have spread throughout Europe and have basically taken over many of the universities, the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas is a Dominican. Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great is a Dominican. The Dominicans more associated with intellect, with life of the mind, with what is true. Okay, uh, The Franciscans more with this uh, fire of love and perhaps mystical experience of love. What we want are these two things in harmony. Um, and uh, the one, in the case of the human person, the will subordinate to uh, the intellect. But so, so, so what you love, you are instructed in what to love by the, by the intellect. Now, um, it's interesting because Dante will also suggest sometimes that love enables you to see. So it's not just that you see something and you fall in love with it, but that love itself causes you to see. Okay. So we will talk about this, especially when we get to, um, to paradise. So uh, let's now open the poem. Um, in Cano one, and by the way, when we begin the second hour, the fields open to all kinds of questions. Okay, so you have questions. I'm sure you have questions, so you can throw throw them at me and the rest of the class. Then um, go to Cano one, and so it begins midway upon the journey of our life. I found myself in a dark wilderness, for I had wandered from the straight and true. How hard a thing it is to tell about that wilderness so savage, dense, and harsh. Even to think of it renews my fear. It is so bitter, death is hardly more. But to reveal the good that came to me, I shall relate the other things I saw. How I had entered, I can't bring to mind. I was so full of sleep just at that point when I first left the way of truth behind. di sonno. I was full of sleep. A quel punto che la veraceria abbandonai. I abandoned, right? Um, I left it behind. Now, um, this is an interesting question, and perhaps we'll talk about this in the second hour, but uh, the, the wandering from the truth path here is, is presented um, not in terms of a decision, in terms, in fact, of a failure of decision, okay? Um, it's not as if he decided to give his life over to evil. That would be actually easier to deal with. It's that he suddenly finds himself in the middle of the dark woods and doesn't even know how he got there. Um, in fact, this uh, straying from the path that would lead to eternal bliss is something that happens to him without his being quite aware of it. 
he was full of sleep. Uh, I think that this is a profound observation here on how most people go wrong, right? What we're going to see as the poem goes on is, is, that, um, is that the souls hurt themselves or even damn themselves, not because so much they are passionate for the wrong things, but because they are cold. Um, they are passionate for very limited things or frankly, they, they, they've developed calluses on the soul and they hardly feel at all. Um, so he's, he's, he's in this dark woods. He tries of his own to get out of it and fails because he's blocked in his path by three beasts. They are suggestive of, uh, you know, we, different critics read in different ways, three general ways of getting things wrong perhaps the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Um, or perhaps pride, uh, lust, and avarice, okay? Or avarice, lust, and pride. Or, or sorry, uh, avarice, anyway, avarice, the last, that he focuses on in the end, the wolf, um, the wolf of uh, greed, the wolf of uh, avarice and ambition. And he, he is terrified by these beasts, and he's not getting anywhere. And at this point, he suggests to us he would be forever lost, right? There is no self-help here. Uh, and suddenly a shade appears to him. Um, so this is, uh, this is on page seven, um, a shadow. And uh, when I saw him in that endless waste, this is line 64. Miserere di me, gridai a lui, mercy upon me, mercy, I cried out, whatever you are, shade or man in truth, miserere di me, miserere me, um, you may think here, okay, that's also from the Psalms, and that's also one of the Psalms that you would be praying in the office of the dead, it's the great miserere Psalm, Psalm 51. Okay, that's the first word there is in Latin there. It's, it's straight from the Bible. It's straight from the office of the dead also. And from Lent, right? Uh, whatever you are, a shade or man in truth. Now, you'd think that, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's locked here. So perhaps some Christian saint has come to visit him. And it's not. He answered me, oh, no, I'm not a man. I was a man. And both my parents came from Lombardy. Mantuani per patria medui. They were Mantuani. They were from Mantua, both of them. In the last days of Julius, I was born, and lived in Rome under the good Augustus, under the in the time of the false and cheating gods. This is he hasn't said my name is Virgil, but everything that he's saying here points Virgil. Dante is, of course, aware of this. I was a poet, so. I was a Lombard, a Mantuan, a Roman, and now a poet. And he's speaking to a Florentine, right? Uh, who also considers himself to be a Roman and a poet. I was a poet. And I sang of how that just son of Anchises, his name is Aeneas, in the Aeneid, came from Troy 
when her proud towers and walls were burnt to dust. Uh, I was a poet and I sang of the Trojan War. Now he also sings of the settling of refugee Trojans on the Italian peninsula that would result in the founding of Rome centuries later. And then of course in the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, right? Dante believes that he actually believes that the Roman emperor has been ordained by God to rule all of mankind, okay? Um, so, so there's a real big deal for Dante. The interesting thing in the description of his being a poet, uh, here he describes himself as a poet of a city that was destroyed. A city that was destroyed for pride. Um, Troy is an object lesson in the fall of the proud. Okay, Dante will use it that way in purgatory. We will see Troy again in purgatory, where, where Troy is like the ultimate example of human pride punished. The city brought down to nothing, annihilated. Okay, um, So he's a poet of complete loss. And that makes him in a funny way appropriate now for this man who is in danger of losing everything. Okay, Also makes him appropriate for a man who's got a lot of political things to say as we, as we move forward. Okay? But it's very strange still. It's not a Christian. It's a pagan who meets him. And the pagan asks him, what's the matter for you? Okay, Matu, perché ritorni a tanta noia? What's the matter for you? Why don't you climb that hill? Oh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of the beast. You know, I'm afraid. Uh, help, you gotta help me. Uh, which Virgil says, you know what? Tell you what. Uh, this is uh, what's gonna be for you, okay? Um, line 112. And so I judge it would be best for you to follow me and I will be your guide leading you out through an eternal place where you will hear the groans of hopeless men, will look upon the sorrowing souls of old, crying in torment for the second death. Then you will look upon those souls content to wait in fire because they hope someday to come among the nation of the blessed. Come with me, I will take you through hell. Then I will take you to purgatory, if we get out of hell. Um, though Virgil didn't say that, but right, that would be next. Should you then wish to rise and go to them, another soul will come worthier than I. He doesn't mention her here yet. With her, I'll leave you when I go my way. For that great emperor who reigns above, because I was a rebel to his law, will not allow me entry to his realm. Everywhere he commands, from there he rules. There stand his city and his lofty throne. Oh, felice colui qui legge. Oh, happy the man he chooses for his house. This is a Virgil there. How poignant and dramatic the moment is. Dante is unparalleled except for Shakespeare at setting an intensely dramatic scene in as few words as possible. There's this man who is going to lead Dante through realms of sorrow 
for Dante's good and not for his own because he did not have the Christian faith. And he says in one line, happy the man he chooses for his house. As if to say, what is the matter with you? You were given what I was not given. Why are you here? But of course, that is also aimed at the reader. Reader, why are you here? Virgil, think Virgil himself was not given the gift you were given. Why do you make so little of it? And I think Dante feels the reproach. Dante, the character in the poem, feels the reproach. He says, poet, I beg of you, by that same God you never knew, per quello di che tu non conoscesti, that I may flee this evil in the worst to come, lead me now to the place you tell me of, so I may see St. Peter's gate. And those you say are dwelling in such misery. He set on, and I held my pace behind. Phenomenal. Okay. Now, um, they're not immediately in hell in, in Canto 2. Some people say that, uh, uh, and I think they're actually wrong about this. They, they say Canto 1 is the introduction to hell. What you really then have are 33 Cantos of hell. We're going to get 33 cantos of purgatory and 33 cantos of paradise. 33 is the fit number because it's the years of the life of Christ, as was believed, right? So the number is associated with Christ. And his form that he writes the poem in is associated with the Trinity, right? He's writing in terzerima. It's in three-line blocks with interlocking rhymes. He invented the form for this poem which would have three big sections to it and which, which would be in celebration of the, of the Trinity. Um, the funny thing, though, is that the, the Canto 2 is not in hell either. Um, so we get two cantos of introduction and 32 cantos. It, and here's an odd kind of thing. I just wanted to, want to show you this little thing like this because really little. There's a lot more complicated stuff going on in this form in Dante. Um, Hell is sort of kind of associated with the number 33, but it falls either to sh it either falls short of it or it is in excess of it. It doesn't hit the mark. In other words, it's not worthy of being associated with the number 33. Okay. Just as the name of Christ and the name of Mary, those names are never uttered in hell. To refer to them, you have to use uh, circumlocution. The names are not uttered, right? Even, so even the number of years of Christ's life on earth, it, it forms hell, right? But it doesn't, okay? So anyway, uh, Canto 2 begins and uh, Dante gets cold feet, um, which is, I think, understandable, right? You're being led into hell. And Virgil himself said in the Aeneid, the Sibyl says to Aeneas, when Aeneas asks her to take him down to, to the underworld so that he can meet his father there. His father is going to tell him about his own future, the future of the people that he's settling there, essentially the future of Rome. Um, Sibyl says, uh, uh, O you born of a goddess, many, many are the ways, many and various are the ways that go down to the underworld. It's easy to get down there. The hard thing is getting back out again. 
Okay, getting back out again—that's where the trouble lies, right? Um, and Dante has this in mind. It's really easy to go down there. The the thing that's tough is to come back. Um, by the way, I'm told that little boys, after Dante had published the Inferno, little boys—boys boys are the same everywhere, every place, right? Every time it would run after him in the streets, teasing him, saying, "Look at the man who went to hell! Look at the man who went to hell!" Right? Uh, so, um, so he says, "Listen, I, I, I don't know if I should do this." Right? It's line ten. Poet, I started. You who guide my steps, see to my strength. Make sure it will suffice before you trust me to so hard a road. You tell of Sylvia's father. That's Aeneas who went down to the immortal world, still in the flesh, and with his flesh, his senses all aware. But I can understand why God would permit this, because he was to be the progenitor of the Roman people. And the Roman people were to establish that empire where would be seated the throne of St. Peter. Okay? That was all ordained in the providence of God. So I understand why he was allowed to go down there. And then St. Paul, who is his um, uh, second letter to the Corinthians, uh, describes a mystical experience that he had where he was caught up to the heaven of heavens. Um, St. Paul was given a vision of the other world. Um, and I understand why that is the case, right? Um, uh, he was a chosen vessel. He, bring, brought, he brought back strength for the faith. The first step on the way of salvation. But I'm not in his. And I'm not St. Paul. Why should I go down there? I think it would be crazy. So I just better stay here. Okay. Now let's be clear about what staying here means. If he stays there, he's damned. Okay. Uh, he's, he'll be damned. Right. Um, now uh, I want you to keep Aeneas and St. Paul in mind. They're not going away. Um, Dante himself is going to play the part of both Aeneas and St. Paul. Okay. Yeah, he, he, he is that arrogant, right? Or that confident of himself. He has, he has a, an aim, right, that is political and social and theological too. Okay. Um, he, Dante the poet, wants to play each role here. All right. Um, but he, the character, says, I'm not Aeneas, I'm not St. Paul. Uh, I better stay where I am. Now, at this point, Virgil, Virgil could say, I, I don't have some matter for you, okay? You want to stay here, you're going to be damned here. What do you got to lose? <laughs> okay? Um, or he could give him rational arguments for going, right? Because Virgil, in part, represents the faculty of human reason, not given the gift of faith, okay? He doesn't have the revelation of God in the scriptures. He's not baptized. He doesn't have faith. But he has reason to the utmost. And you would think he would give him a rational argument. There are plenty. And he doesn't give him a rational argument. In effect, he tells him a love story. That's remarkable, okay? Um, let's, uh, take a look at it here. It's on page 17. I was among the souls in limbo. 
Iera Thracolor que son suspesi. So there's, I was among the suspended souls, souls in limbo. We'll find out that's in Dante's conception, that's the first circle of hell. There is no punishment there. There's no hope. There's no fulfillment of the human person's deepest longings, but there's no punishment. That place is reserved for the virtuous pagans and for babies who die unbaptized. So I was there when so lovely and blessed a lady called to me. E donna mi chiamò Beate Bella. Una donna. You know, I love that. In Italian, if you're referring to a woman, she's una donna. And that's from Latin, domina, the mistress of a household. Um, it's the feminine for donno, which would be the master of a household. So it's in English, be lady uh, in conjunction with lord. So it's a title of very high honor. Okay. Una donna. Uh, Una donna, e donna mi chiamò Beata e Bella. She was blessed, Beata, happy, and Bella, beautiful. She was so beautiful, I asked her for the grace of a command. Um, before she has opened her lips, Virgil asks her to give him something to do for her. I am at your command. All right. Um, what kind of thing has happened in the soul of Virgil beholding Beatrice? Love has happened, right? He is responding to Beatrice as a courtly lover responds when he sees this surpassingly beautiful and virtuous woman. Um, the woman that Dante seems perhaps to have temporarily forgotten. Virgil sees her before she even opens her mouth. He says, command me. Her eyes were flashing brighter than the stars, and she addressed me with an angel's voice, sweetly and softly in such words as these. And um, I mean, here the Italian language is, is simply incomparable, right? I mean, uh, such a beautiful language. O anima cortese mantoana. O courtly soul of Mantua. O kind and gracious soul of Mantua. O anima cortese mantoana. So she addresses him in courtly terms. Um, and this is, like, this is 1,300 years after the death of Virgil, a pagan. And he's part of this whole wonderful medieval system of courtly love. Um, uh, and she says, I, I have a friend, an a, a, amico, and in, in Italian, there's no difference between the, uh, how you would say lover and how you would say friend, right? Uh, amico kind of does double duty there. Um, it's an important word here. He's not, you know, I got a buddy. It, it's a friend I love. It's not a friend of fortune. He's in big trouble. Okay. And from what I've heard of him in heaven, I fear he may have wandered so far wrong. My rising for his help may come too late. Go then, and with the beauty of your words and any skill you have to set him free. That's going to be a motif we will see again and again throughout the poem. And we'll 
will focus on it again and again. This is about liberty. It's about the liberation of a human soul. Um, help him that I may be consoled. Io son Beatrice che ti faccio andare. I am Beatrice. And the name means the, the one who brings blessings, the blessed one. I am the blessed Beatrice who bid you go. Love makes me speak. Amor mi mosse. Che mi fa parlare. Um, love moved me and makes me speak. Right. Um, Virgil, Virgil goes on. Uh, he then asks her, why, why are you not afraid to plant your feet here in hell? Um, she says, has no power to do me harm. And then she, she develops uh, more the story of how she came to be there. Right. Um, there's a gentle lady in heaven, una donna, right? And she was so moved by pity for this man that she set the whole train of uh, love in motion here. And that woman who is not named is Mary, right? Una donna, right? She is, call her Madonna, my lady, right? That's what Madonna means, my lady. Um, and she's a gentile donna. She's a noble lady, a gentle lady, a courtly lady. And she goes to Santa Lucia. Um, and Dante is said to have had a special devotion to St. Lucy. Lucy is also the patron saint of vision, of eyesight. It's also important, I think. And Lucy then goes to Beatrice, and Lucy speaks to Beatrice. And says, Beatrice, ah, it's a matter for you. How come you don't assist him? He left the common crowd of poets for your sake. And Beatrice is immediately on her way, right? And she speaks to Virgil. That's why I'm here. So we got from Mary to Lucy to Beatrice to Virgil. And Virgil is telling this story to Dante. Right? It's a wonderful uh, vision of the communion of the saints. This is not uh, a faith in which, you know, you've got your guru over here and he's all wound up in himself and he has his own mystical visions and they fine. Um, this is a whole corporate life we're talking about, okay? Um, and, uh, and when she finishes speaking, her eyes were glistening with tears. Yoki lucenti lagrimando, rose. And the tears in her eyes... That's it. it. Virgil's gone. Virgil's, I'm on my way. Okay. And that's why I'm here. So what is wrong with you? He says to Dante, don't quick. You have to look at line 121 in the Italian, right? Don't quick. What the heck is it? Why? Why are you stuck here? Why are you resting or delaying here? Perché tante viltà nel cuore What is this with, with this low, vile cowardice? Three such ladies blessed in heaven care for you. And what I say promises you so much good. He's like a little flower uh, that's all shut up in the cold night air when the sun rises and it shines on it and it opens. Um, See, the response here is a response to a call of love, and it's a response of love. 
right? And he gets his courage back and cries out, Oh, Pieto Sakole, Kimi Sakora, say, Oh, Lady of Compassion and my help. Go, he says. Um, you, you are my leader now. You are my guide, my lord, and my teacher, my master. Tu duca, tu senore, tu maestro. All right, let's go. And they go. And um, I see that it's, uh, I see it's 9.35, so I'm just going to read what we immediately get at the beginning of Candle 3. I didn't go, I didn't get nearly as far as I wanted to get. Uh, because we um, used up a bunch of minutes at the beginning with me setting the stage and with uh, uh, Nicole and John also setting that kind of stage. Um, In any lesser writer, we would have a little description of how they made their way, you know, and finally they saw uh, this, uh, and Dante looked at it and started to read. Not with Dante. Boom, you're there. Okay. You're there. And these words, per me si va nella città dolente. I am the way into the city of woe. Per me si va nell'eterno dolore. I am the way into eternal pain. Per me si va tra la perduta gente. I am the way to go among the lost. Giustizia mos il mio alto fattore. Justice caused my high architect to move. Fecimi la divina potestate. Divine omnipotence created me. La somma sapienza. The highest wisdom and the primal love. It's the Trinity that's identified there. Dinanzi a me non for cose create se non eterne. E io eterna duro. Before me, there were no created things, but those that last forever, as do I. Lasciate ogni speranza voi che Abandon all hope, you who enter here. There may be in hell uh, curdled, corrupt versions of faith that is incomplete knowledge or twisted knowledge. There are corrupt and twisted desires, right? But there is not even a corrupted and or incomplete or frustrated version of hope. There's nothing of that. That's the thing that's lost. Abandon all hope. You enter here. State motto of New Jersey. Um, sorry. <laughs> anyway, so let's take um, let's take the break right now. Okay, uh, we're a little bit over time, but um, so we take. Uh, I think uh, it's a ten minute break, right? So it's now nine thirty seven. So we'll come back at nine forty seven. That all right? Okay. Uh, I'd like to go a little bit farther here, um, talking about Cano 3, and then throw everything open for uh, for questions. Uh, and perhaps we can make up some of the things we will we'll, next time. We'll probably also take 
take a glance at a few of the things in the first 10 canos uh, as we move forward. Um, so uh, the words are pretty harsh on the gate. Um, Dante, Virgil says to Dante, now's not the time for cowardice. You've got to come down there with me, okay? Um, and uh, an unusual thing meets his eyes. Uh, this is on page 25, okay? Um, before you actually cross the river into hell proper, there's a whole lot of souls. And they're, they're doing something very strange, okay? Um, and uh, uh, Dante in line 33 says, well, who are these people? And Virgil answers, this state of misery is clutched by those sad souls whose works in life merited neither praise nor infamy. Here they're thrown in among that petty choir of angels who were for themselves alone, not rebels and not faithful to the Lord. He can't go to, they can't go to heaven because they would ruin, they would, they would mar the beauty of heaven. And they're not even allowed down below into hell uh, across the river because they, they're so contemptible, these souls, that the other souls in hell would feel some pride in beholding them. They would get to glory it over them. And that can't be. So now they're stuck here forever. Uh, they're the indifferent. They're the souls of the opportunists. It just went whatever way the wind was blowing. Okay. Um, they're not characterized by love, by passion, even by passion for the wrong things or by a wrong degree or a wrong manner of passion. For things that would otherwise be good. These are characterized by no devotion. Okay. And um, the uh, the punishment is absolutely fit for for the souls there. Uh, line 52. And and Virgil says, I'm not even gonna name any of them. They're not even worth our consideration. Look and pass. And I, beholding, saw a banner fly, whirling about and racing with such speed, it seemed that it would scorn to stand or pause. And all behind that flag, in a long file, so numerous a host of people ran, I had not thought death had unmade so many. Okay. Uh, the banner has nothing on it. They are running after a blank, okay? Racing along after nothing for all eternity because they never gave their hearts even to evil in this world. Um, line 61 on page 27, immediately I understood the truth. This was the low sect of those paltry souls hateful to God and to his enemies. These worthless wretches who had never lived were pricked to motion now perpetually by flies and wasps that stung their naked limbs and ran the blood in furrows down their faces. The blood falls to the feet where it's gathered up by worms. 
maggots. Um, that's that's fit for you. You never even gave yourself to anything in life. Okay. Um, what a what a proud man Dante is. Well, he's gonna he says of himself later in Purgatory. You know what? I'm afraid I'm gonna have to spend a long time in that circle in purgatory where you atone for pride. I think I'm going to spend a lot of years there. Um, probably probably right about that. Now, um, they go down to the river Acheron, which is your entrance to hell. There were four rivers in hell, and they're really all the same river, but they, uh, they call by different names at different stages in hell. And they all funnel down to the bottom which is frozen. It's a frozen wasteland at the bottom. Okay. There's four different rivers, but all the same river, different characteristics in different places. This, this one is a, a dismal swampy river. Now imagine um, how bad it is for you on this day, right? You, first of all, you're dead. Okay. Um, and you're at the shore of a really dismal place. Okay, that's not looking too hopeful. And then this happens, okay? And look here, line 82 and following. Coming at us in a boat, an old man, hair and lank skin, white with age, hollering. It's got to be done in the Italian. Woe to you, crooked souls. I used to tell my students that if I had to have any job in hell, this would be the one I would want, right? To be the welcome wagon of hell. Give up all hope to look upon the sky. Cello is a wonderful word. It does double duty. It means sky and also heaven. So the, the sentence literally means you're never going to hope to get to heaven. It also means... You're never going to see the sky again, all right? I mean, think of hell as this increasingly tight, cramped little hole. Um, you never look upon the stars. You never look upon the sky. It's a natural thing for human beings, or it used to be. You go outside and you immediately look up at the sky. You'll never do that again, okay? Even you permanently live and let every eternity in calo in jail. I come to lead you to the other shore into eternal darkness, fire and ice. Uh, and you, pal, you, the living soul, get away from these others who are dead. Um, and this is the first instance of what will happen rather regularly through hell. Hell does not want to give up its secrets. Okay. And um, the Virgil and Dante will often find uh, re they're really resisting telling them stories and resisting letting them pass farther because they don't, hell doesn't want you to know about it. Okay. Um, and this is the first time it happens. Charon says, you're living. Get away. These are dead. And Virgil has to say, which he'll do several times, he says, Charon. Shut up, okay? Non ti cruciare. Quit the grumbling. This is willed from on high, where will has power to do whatever it will. And so he, he plays the ticket 
he plays the card. This is divinely ordained. Boom. And Caron falls quiet. But now we move back. See, Dante's, Dante would be a great movie director. Okay? While you were listening to this words and this interchange between a Virgil who tells Chiron to shut up, you've forgotten temporarily about these other souls. They have heard these words. And now we look at them. Then all, uh, But when they heard the old man's cruel words, those naked and exhausted souls turned white, gnashing their teeth with fury for their fate. Bestemiavano Dio e lo parenti, hurled blasphemy at God and at their parents, at the whole human race, the place, the time, the seed of their beginning and their birth. Um, that is an all-encompassing curse. Right? They curse God. They curse their parents. They curse the human race. And they curse the place, the time, and the seed of their begetting and their birth. Uh, I curse space. I curse time. I curse my parents. I curse God. I curse everything. Okay. Um, it's a it's like a fundamental denial of everything that is right. Um, doesn't matter. Uh, they got to get into the boat. Uh, the boat has no sails, by the way. He's got a long stick that he uses to push the boat forward with. He plants it in the mud under the river. That's his means of propulsion. Keep it in mind, because you're going to meet a very different kind of boat at the beginning of Purgatory. This boat, old naked man with red eyes who gleefully curses at you. And he's pushing a boat through a dismal swamp by means of a long stick in the mud. All right. Different kind of boat we get at the beginning of Purgatory. Um Sometimes they hesitate a little bit, so he smacks them up the, upside the head with his oar. But then something really fascinating happens, right? Um, line 112. As in the fall, when leaves are lifted off, one drops, another, till the naked branch sees all its garment lying on the earth. So the bad seed of Adam, one by one, toss themselves from the shore at Charon's side as hawks returning to the master's call. They hate it, but they want it. They loathe it. They resist it, but they go. Okay. They cross the murky waters, and before they disembark upon the farther side, another throng has gathered ashore. Virgil explains it this way. My gracious teacher spoke to me, my son, all souls that die beneath the wrath of God from every nation here collect in one, and they are prompt to cross the river. For justice divine so goads and spurs them on that what they fear turns into their desire. Um, fascinating. Uh, vision of the of the stupidity of evil the self-contradiction of evil 
there's something about evil that is suicidal at the very core. Okay. Um, what you hate, what you fear is yet the same thing that you desire. Okay. Um, I suppose something analogous might be said about God. That is, um, we craven people, we, we, we fear God. We try to run away from God, and yet God is the object of our deepest desire. Well, that whole thing is inverted now, right? Um, they have chosen this place. In essence, they have loved this place. And again and again, what we're going to see is that um, the punishment that's leveled at the sinners is not something extrinsic to themselves, right? Um, what the punishment is, is the sin itself repeated endlessly, okay? Um, the punishment is the sin, right? Um, that's what you get because that's what you are because that that's what you've made yourself to be. You have given your heart and your mind to this, so you have it. Um, it reminds me of the words of uh, C.S. Lewis in, I think, the novel, The Great Divorce, a great novel. Uh, and Lewis is a big fan of Dante, deeply influenced by Dante. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Right? And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Um, it's only two kinds. And uh, God is saying, has said to these souls, you have your will. This is it. This is what you have desired. Now you have it and you have it forever. Um, so I, I'll, I'll stop here now. And I have to throw things open for questions. It can come from any of the 10 cantos that I've asked you to read, but especially for the first, uh, the first three that we've actually, I've actually talked a little bit about here. So um, let's, uh, let's have some discussion. We've got about... Uh... Hey you, why just listen to these podcasts when you can be participating in the great discussions that follow the lectures? Become a fellow today and do just that at magnusinstitute.org. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, copyright 2021, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, all rights reserved. <laughs>